0: Hello and
1: nope, nope, nope. It's me.
0: (laughs) Oh fuck, it's you. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) You wrote this (laughs) in May. I wrote it in May.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Shit. All right. Hello and welcome back to Two Hearts and New Who podcast. I'm James
0: and I'm Callum, and this is the only podcast where we go to war with the country of Turkey, then eat the Turkey people for Christmas dinner like savages and every week here on two hearts we take a look at another episode from the doctor who revival and this week we're just an echo with a ghost of consciousness looking at voyage of the damned the 2007 christmas special and as a special treat the opening episode of series four partners in crime but just before that, as always, a quick reminder, if you've ever felt like you want to join in on the banter, you can. You can email us at twoheartspodcast@gmail.com gmail.com to have your thoughts and feelings read out on the show. That's to the word two, by the way. Or you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at twoheartspod, that's the number two. So uh, before we get started, let's just quickly check in with the news and with each other because it feels like a hot minute since we last spoke, James. How are you?
1: Uh, yeah, it definitely has been uh, quite a period of time since we last jumped on to do this silly little, silly little show of ours. Um, life has been, uh, I guess, full of quite a few changes. Before we dive into any sort of, uh, you know, the actual topic of our show, Callum, do you want to just fill
0: the folks in on, on why, where we've been? Well, I can fill you in on where I've been, which is in the same city as James currently is. Um Yes, it's true. The rumours are true. I've moved back from Sydney to Adelaide. Um, (laughs) Honestly, better than ever because uh, there's been a recent COVID outbreak in Sydney. So I feel like I really dodged a bullet there. Um, We're not recording in the same room still, unfortunately. That's just another step we will take in due course. Um, But in, in all seriousness, so it's really good to be back in Adelaide, to be back with my friend.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's definitely been uh, pleasant to to welcome Colin back to um, the little little town of Adelaide. Uh, it's good to see movies again. Good to good to get to talk about Doctor Who in person and sort of plan the show out a mm. bit more. And yeah, we're we're looking forward to getting back into the swing of things with two hearts. Um, I, I can't speak for you, but I, I've certainly missed doing this. Uh, I, I've missed our consistent. Uh, lovely little audience. We see you. Uh, we thank you so much for, for bearing with us through the break there. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's really good to be back and to be talking about The, the Who,
0: speaking, the band. Speaking of... <laughs> good qualifier, just in case you were worried. Um, yeah. Speaking of Who, um, talk to Who News. Do you have any updates for us, James, on that front?
1: Yeah, so we're in a bit of a... Um, Uh, a a dry patch of Doctor Who news at the moment. It is obviously between seasons. COVID has delayed that filming quite a bit and so um, not since Dan the Man has there been any sort of definitive stuff for us to talk about. Um, On the less than definitive side though, we do have uh, this kind of consistent rumour that Jodie Whittaker is going to be stepping away from the role after her 2022 special, is that right?
0: Uh, Yeah, I've been reading this about S- uh, the re- the hesitation in my voice is because there seem to be just rumors out there all the time that keep saying she's leaving uh but they contradict each other and i think it's mostly just fans screaming into the void and making up stories that's my own personal kind of opinion on this whole thing <laughs> because you ju- you feel so desperate to like to know something especially when you're used to a previous marketing cycle where it was just like every time there'll be like announcements a month. It felt like of just something, you know? So this kind of radio Mm. silence attitude that the most recent production team have taken, uh, well, I, whilst I really do appreciate it because it means that the time it's on is just that much more special. Um, it does mean that it's filled in the holes with these like rumors. And so the most recent one is that Jodie Whittaker is going to be leaving Dr. Who in some, Hitherto never mentioned 2022 specials, Uh, The thing about that that implies for me is that there's actually won't be a full series next year. Um, And we'll go back to the kind of like the Tenant Smith era where it would be like, oh, we're just taking a random year off. And here's an episode mm. (laughs) for you all. Well,
1: it's kind of like the, um, sorry, excuse me. Uh, it's it's kind of like those uh I don't know this is a loaded term in in, in who fandom but like like that wilderness year that Tenant's Doctor had after series 4 where it was like oh there's just some episodes with him in it maybe it's not even an official season it's just the end of his story um mm. so i wonder if after sort of the very kind of covid restricted series uh 13 that we're up to? Yeah. Um, maybe if, if after that, <clears throat> we're going to be entering into a period of time with Jodie Whitaker's Doctor where we just get maybe like a couple of movie link things to kind of see her out, which would be unfortunate because, um, and we talked about this when we did our sort of like Chibnall-Jodie uh, retrospective, but like, I don't think we've seen what Jodie could really do in the role. I, th- I think she has been quite hampered by uh, a showrunner who is, um, you know, not... Not doing what we would like, let's say, you know, let's, <laughs> if we want to keep it subjective because I understand a lot of people do appreciate what's going on with the show at the moment. Um, I, I would still prefer to see Jody, uh, have a season with just a, a different creative voice at, at the head of it, maybe a bit more of a steady hand. Um, but I, I can only speak for myself there.
0: Yeah, of course. And that, um, well, that's why we do this podcast because it's just our opinion. You listen to it. You don't listen to it. That's your prerogative. Um, you can edit that out. Um, <laughs> no, that, that's that's what we do here. We offer our opinion. And it, Jody has definitely been hampered uh, by creative choices, but I don't think we're entering into a, a, a period of wilderness for the show. I think in some ways we're sort of already in it, um, just given mm. the sort of lack of care. But then even as I'm saying that, it's like not even lack of care, but just sort of like a clinical... Approach to marketing this show now. Yeah, I know
1: just what you mean. <clears throat> it does feel like it's it's lacking a little bit of um, a bit of heart and soul at the moment. Yeah, like, even like a bit of grit. Like I just I don't. Yeah, I, this, this is a much bigger conversation. I think either of us were planning for tonight, um, <clears throat> for our first episode back. But uh, yeah, it, there's definitely just. Uh, a vibe around Doctor Who at the moment that is unfortunately lacking in a, in a lot mm. of ways. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot of factors that go
0: into that, but... Um, but you know what? Yeah. what isn't lacking, James? You know what isn't lacking? Mm. You know what's full of festive fun? It's Voyage of the <laughs> Damned. <laughs> All right,
1: let's... <laughs> All aboard! Oh, God.
0: <laughs> let's just do this. Voyage of the Damned is... Well, it's not even episode anything. It's just a Christmas special of season four, let's say. Episode zero. Episode zero. I've written episode X in the description here, which, yeah, very mysterious. Very how-to-do. X for Xmas as well. X for Xmas. Gosh. It's almost like I thought it through. Um, Directed by James Strong. Previous credits including The Impossible Planet two-parter and The Daleks in Manhattan two-parter, which we both loved. So, you know... There you go. Uh, Off to a strong start. Off to a great start. (laughs) Writer Russell T Davies. Did you get it?
1: Because his name is James Strong.
0: Writer Russell (laughs) T Davies. And here's a little plot description I wrote back in May. Here we go. The Titanic has just crashed into the walls of the TARDIS, but don't fear. The Doctor spins a dial and magically turns back any possible drama from the Series 3 cliffhanger. Oh, joy. He materialises on board the Titanic, not the famed ship that had a run-in with an iceberg, but a a spaceship recreation from Max Capricorn cruise liners from the planet Stowe, taking holidaymakers on a pleasure cruise to orbit Earth. The Doctor meets Astrid, a plucky young waitress who dreams of seeing the stars, but never got further than a service gig on the ship. But something is afoot on the Titanic. The captain of the ship causes meteorites to crash into the hull, leaving the ship a wreck. They discover that heavenly hosts, robot angels designed to help the guests, are running amok in killing people. Now the Doctor and a ragtag group of misfits need to make their way through the ship to turn on the engines and steer the ship away before it crashes into Earth. On the way, several people die unceremoniously, including the Van Hoffs and Banakafalata, a cyborg who donates his power cell to Astrid to fight off the hosts. The gang split up, and while the Doctor is taken to the host's leader, Astrid tries to send an SOS to Earth. The master behind behind the scheme is revealed to be Max Capricorn, a head grafted onto a tractor, who, after being shoved out of his own company, intended to use the crash to bankrupt the company and frame the board of directors for murder. But never fear, Astrid appears on a forklift and pushes Max off a cliff question mark, to his death. The hosts assume the Doctor is their next leader for reasons and transport him to the bridge, where he makes a desperate attempt to pull the ship out of Earth's orbit, successfully saving the world and specifically... The Queen of England. The Doctor uses the last of the teleport energy to bring Astrid back as, quote, stardust, then sets her free. The Doctor gifts one of the survivors, Mr. Copper, with millions of pounds so he can start a new life on Earth before denying him a trip in the TARDIS because he isn't a sexy blonde woman like Astrid. (laughs) That's Voyage of the Dam, folks. (laughs) Accurate, not accurate.
1: Um, no, uh, accurate. And I think the level of cynicism you inserted in there is also pretty accurate.
0: It should be noted, I was going to say readers then, it should be noted, listeners, that that was heavily edited down and there was a lot more cynicism present in the original version.
1: Yeah, I had to to take some creative liberties with, with Callum's episode description there because I don't even like this episode very much, but, uh, oh boy. Um, Voyage of the Damned is, uh... Well, okay. I, I think it's best to start off with this one with a bit of context. Um, you told this to me back when we originally watched this one. Uh, it remains the most watched Doctor Who episode of the new run. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Um, I think it, up until very, very, very recently, it had the like not only like the highest viewing figures for Doctor Who, which I think it still does, but it had like the highest viewing figures for like an overnight show for BBC One in history. Um, and I think only recently has that like mark been uh, sort of been capped. Uh, sorry, not capped. What I mean, it's been overrun by uh line of duty, this British mm. crime drama, um, which I don't particularly watch, but I know a lot of people do. And I actually would be interested to watch it. That's a different conversation. Um, <clears throat> so like, there are a lot of factors in play as to why that would be main being that like this episode, I think represents the absolute, This and another episode in season four, which we'll get to, um, represents, like, the absolute zenith of Doctor Who's popularity um, before and since. Like, it's kind of unprecedented just how big Doctor Who is. And it's sort of hard to remember how it was now when I think about the show at that time. Um, Like, I remember Mm. it being big for me, but because, like, as a kid in Adelaide, who's into Doctor Who and, like, blatantly gay... (laughs) Um, everything you like, you just assume is, like, weird and, like, like, unliked, basically. Um, but, like, this was massive. Compounded all the more by the fact that, obviously, like, it has a star turn from Kylie Minogue in it. Um, (laughs) which is a whole conversation. So, yeah. Yes. 13.31 million, I think, was the figure. I could be wrong.
1: Yeah. It is absurd numbers. Um, and, and yeah, to, to your point, I, it was the time when like Doctor Who was, uh, like we've, we've called it this on the show before, but like appointment television for a lot of people uh, and especially those Christmas specials. I specifically remember like, even if you didn't give a shit about Doctor Who, people watched the Doctor Who Christmas specials because they were the event of, they were the television event at least of, of, that, of the season. Um, mm. And Voyage of the Damned, viewed through that lens, uh, I think it was Moffat that said it, and then you told me that Moffat said it. But like the idea that these Christmas specials are written for the back of the room. Um I I understand Voyage of the Dam through that lens. It's it's big, uh it's loud, it's
0: um it's a lot. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a lot of an episode.
0: <clears throat> and that um what you've just said from Russell T, I don't I can't remember if he specifically said it, but I remember Stephen Moffat's very specifically saying that, like, he writes his Christmas specials for audiences that he knows, like, are, like are drunk and sleepy and like half mm. paying attention on like Christmas Day. So yeah, you're right. Like these Christmas specials are not written for nuance or for. And we've said this before, anyway. But they're not written for kind of uh quieter moments. Um, I think as you get into the Moffat era they're not very critic friendly they're critic friendly for sure when you get into the Moffat era they sort of become more essential to watch as he integrates them into the main plots but in the Tenant era I mean these are just like just you could just excise them completely and and have no you wouldn't you um, continuity from what had come before and I in some ways I kind of appreciate that aspect like because they are special in that kind of sense um yeah but both approaches have their own pros and cons
1: yeah i'd agree well i guess notably except for the runaway bride which serves as like a prologue for this season um in a in a roundabout way
0: well yeah in a kind of an accidental way because it was never intended that she well yeah would go on but yes now we can view it with that lens for sure um but yeah what do you think of just what do you think of this episode in in general
1: Um, I, uh, I'm in a weird spot with it because I, I don't, I, I, um, I don't hate it. Um, like I don't think it's, uh, necessarily a, a bad, uh, what, hour and a half of television. Like this thing's huge. Um, I, I don't enjoy it, but that's not the same thing as it being bad. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Hmm. Um, I, I think that as a Christmas special, um, especially, what Doctor Who was at this time, where pop culture was at this time. um, I think this all makes a lot of sense. Um, It doesn't make for a pleasant viewing experience for me in the year 2021. (laughs) Um, But I can see its value. I think that the fact that it manages to get even half of the little moments in there that I enjoy like fit in between a script this bombastic is impressive on Russell's part um, I'm thinking specifically about the stuff with the ship captain and the fir- the third mate or whatever the young guy is um, there's some stuff with the couple that wins the tickets onto the ship that I, I really appreciate and then of course uh, this is the beginning of uh, thankfully the the period of uh, David Tennant's time on the show where they finally click into place with what they're trying to do with his character um and the god complex stops being subtext and even accidental subtext and becomes like text um so that is very exciting to me i think this sets up some great stuff for series four i think has some good little moments uh but on the whole i still find the bulk of it to just be just i don't know messy just just uh, it's there
0: you know I sort of have a sort of a, a different <clears throat> approach to think about this story, um, that really goes back to sort of my memories of when it came out. Cause I remember, and this is so niche, um, but I remember when this, like this, I think the break between series three and four was like one of the peak periods of my Doctor Who like obsession. And... Series 3 and Doctor Who, I think I've spoken about this before, but it was terrible because it was going out on ABC at the same time as I was away on, like, a seven-week Northern Territory trip (laughs) where we didn't have TV reception. So that was just, like, a pain. Um, But I do remember specifically, like, in Alice Springs getting the newspaper and in this local newspaper was a story about how Kylie Minogue was going to be in Doctor Who. And that (laughs) speaks to, like just how pervasive and widespread that news became here. Um, because Kylie is, is like, our princess, for lack of a better word. She is... She is our, like, biggest yeah. cultural for, export. For folks
1: across... Exactly. For folks across the pond, uh, Kylie Minogue is, um, she's like, she's our pop star. Um, she, I think she remains probably our biggest pop star in, in terms of that, um, industry. Uh, she has sung so many songs that you would have heard
0: in your life. Uh, just look her up, hit anything well, on YouTube and you'll be like, oh, it's Kylie Minogue. <laughs> even you saying that is kind of like redundant because like she is just big, if not bigger in Britain, I think. Like, and there's a reason why she lives there.
1: Oh, I was thinking more about
0: US listeners personally. <laughs> True, I completely forgot we even have US listeners, and I'm so sorry to all of you.
1: Hi, US listeners. Hi.
0: <laughs> how you going? You hungry?
1: Uh, we're throwing <laughs> another shrimp on the barbie over here for you.
0: <laughs> no, okay,
1: sorry, sorry. Thank you for listening. Um, Yeah, no, so, yeah, no, agree. And yeah, she was huge in Britain as well, Um, which of course makes sense that this is something that they would pull from Um,
0: for this episode, you know? Do you know the story about how she got involved in the show to begin with?
1: I assumed Russell T Davies just wanted another pretty blonde.
0: Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, spicy. Sassy swipe. <laughs> <laughs> it actually worked in the other way. It was um, Kylie's, like, creative director at the time, Will Baker, who is, like, a massive fan of the show and... Of Doctor Who, I should say. Not our show. Um, a massive fan of Doctor <laughs> Who. And um, was... I think, like, had modelled some looks from her, like, past studio... Uh, sorry stadium shows on like Doctor Who there's even a bit in her 2007 like showgirl tour where they do like a like a, just an out and out Doctor Who section to the theme with Cyberman <laughs> performing it's really quite bizarre when you think about it but obviously in, in context of 2007 makes some kind of sense um but yeah he wrote to Russell T Davies and he was like hey um we should put Kylie into this and into the show and Russell was like, oh yeah okay whatever and then didn't think anything of it being like it's never gonna happen but he like kept pursuing it um so i think like that speaks to just like i we've said this a million times but it speaks to how big the show was at this point as well that it would be kylie pursuing them and not the other way around yeah yeah um do we think that she's good in this though (laughs) <laughs>
1: um i <laughs> no look okay i think that the the character of astrid peth peth mm. yeah astrid peth is a a lovely character um i i quite vibe with the writing that russell gave astrid um i think that there are times when kylie perfectly embodies the kind of, uh, earnest naivety that Astrid has, um, in the same way that she embodies the, uh, surprisingly complex sexuality that she has, um, and I, I, I fuck with all of that. Then there are a lot of other times where I'm like, oh, that's Australian pop icon Kylie Minogue acting. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's two very sort of despondent halves of a
0: character for me. How do you feel about it? I just, I don't even have a feeling. I know that's really bad for this show, but like, she's just kind of fine. Um, and yep. you call her a lovely character. I don't even know if she's that. She's just kind of, I think the worst in this episode, like commits is that she is the exact definition of like generic feisty companion um and right. like feisty is such an overuse. we we know how overused that is to describe female characters um and like she i think that astrid is one of the laziest kind of representations of that character <laughs> um until we meet the doctor's daughter next season Ooh. um <laughs> but at the same time like i'm listeners i'm gay (laughs) and so (laughs) i can't deny the thrill of seeing kylie fucking kylie in doctor who um and so there is still like this weird part of me that every time she pops up on screen that goes like "Ooh," and i it's, it's funny because like it it's also like quite refreshing that this episode doesn't make more of her like it it could have very well just been like the Kylie hour featuring Doctor Who, but she is very much a part of an ensemble cast here. And yeah, I think that's actually quite bold a move to take, um, for the show. Um, and I, that just starts from like the way they introduce her. Like it, she doesn't get this like special introduction. She doesn't get like booming like trumpets or like a wind machine or anything like that. Like she's just in a tracking shot amongst all the other Mm. passengers and it doesn't really make much of a thing of her presence there and like watching the episode back i was like that's really weird and cool they've done that but it's not much
1: yeah no that's fair i mean you could see an alternate reality in which they had her do something like oh a bit of a singer myself you know like Mm. (laughs) because
0: i have a singer there's a band
1: but That's it. There, there's a band. Yeah, exactly. It would have been really easy to do that. And I mean, I, I what I like about Astrid as a character is is what you put in that um, episode description, like the idea that of somebody um, like any of the other companions that we've met before, really. Well, I mean, except for Martha, I suppose. But, like, that wants to see more and just sort of never got further than, like, a working-class job on on a tourist cruise. Like, I I think there's something there. I don't think they do anything with it at mm. all. Um, but I do like it as, like, a, a base starting-off point for Astrid. Um, and the the other scene that, of hers that really stands out for me is when, um, I don't know, she, she finds out the Doctor's, like, forever ages old or whatever um and she's like oh you look pretty good for uh your age or 900 years old whatever it is and he's like yeah you should see me in the morning and she's like okay and it's just <laughs> so refreshingly direct instead of this like coy oh i love the doctor like she's just like i want to fuck this guy and i i i really respect that um mm. i don't love another you know, pretty white blonde woman falling over herself for the doctor and there's some other stuff. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, But that specific moment, I thought it was nice to see Russell finally
0: write a woman who was a bit more in charge of her sexuality. Um, I like that interpretation of it because obviously you could take it in the opposite direction and just be like, oh, she's just so love-eyed, doughy-eyed that she's not even like, oh, I'm just so brainless. Like, okay, whatever you want. Um, I don't think she plays it like that though. I think she plays it perfectly uh with the right amount of like yeah you're pretty fucking sexy and we're about to die anyway so like let's exactly they yeah. definitely boned in a cupboard while they were trying to escape the titanic
1: but it comes to two hearts for folks the mental images that callum can conjure um <laughs> yeah the the other half uh okay to, so to talk about astrid's role in the in this uh story um you've got a also consider how um, Voyage of the Damned works as a follow-up to Martha's ending um, Mm. because, uh, what was it? Uh, The Runaway Bride was very much about Rose's ending, right? It was a, this is the next part of his process with her ending, right? Um, And Voyage of the Damned, uh, it, it really fumbles this for me because, you know... We get this scene at the end with Martha and the doctor um, where it's basically like, oh, look, you know, we can't really keep traveling together because, um, you know, there's this unrequited kind of like romantic element to our dynamic. Right. (laughs) Um, And then to go from that scene where the doctor kind of like coldly denies Martha that element of their relationship um, into another story with uh, like another blonde white woman, mm. where he's suddenly open to the idea of having a romantic liaison. Um, it does. It, it feels odd to me. I, I don't like the the taste that that leaves on on the palate.
0: Um, Look, and yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think that plays into this. That what I spoke to earlier with the, like that sense that these episodes are just like adrift in their own like personal timeline, and they don't all the time have to like link up with what's come before. And this in particular, this episode feels like it has no relation to what's on either side of it. Because like what you're talking about with the leftover Martha stuff, I feel like is definitely part of the DNA of partners in crime. Um, But not this episode. And it is, you're right. Cause like this episode is supposed to take place seconds after he's just said goodbye to Martha. And mm. here he is like here, he- there he was just like, shut off, emotional, I won't talk about, oh, I could never love anyone but Rose, to this episode where it's like, oh, yeah, come and travel with me. Oh, yeah, come be on the TARDIS with me. Uh, and-, yeah, and it's exactly. also frustrating because when we get to partners in crime, we're going to see a doctor who does feel like he's followed on from that ending with Martha and who does express concern and about the possibility of taking on somebody else. And so... Yeah that all tracks it's just this episode is like a weird speed bump in that like <clears throat> journey in that respect
1: yeah uh agreed agreed um outside of astrid i i mean anyway, <laughs> okay
0: <clears throat> let's just let's i think honestly it would just help if we just like get it all out like what are our grievances what do we feel
1: well, no, like, I don't really have, like, grievances as such. Well, no, no, okay. I do have a massive <laughs> grievance that, that I know you and I are probably aligned on, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, Russell T Davies has a problem with fat characters. Um, yeah. I'm pretty comfortable being definitive about that, given the back-to-back stories we're talking about today, especially. Um, but... I, on rewatch, because, you know, we watch it once, then we watch it again, sort of really take notes and sort of try to absorb these episodes. Um, I definitely appreciate that he, um, and I'm forgetting their
0: names, uh, the couple that wins the tickets. He's Marvin Van Hoff. I don't know, remember her name. Woman Van Hoff. Okay.
1: Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Van Hoff. Um. Foon! Those characters are so sweetly written at times um there, there is so much humanity uh in in their little dynamic that they've got together. Uh, I think having you know the working class couple out of place in a very rich and fancy environment and everyone's kind of laughing at them and whatnot is already enough of a dynamic um the problem is that Russell then decides that they're gonna be um like uh they're gonna be fat characters both of them again not a problem on its own no. But they are introduced Gorging themselves at a table Um, And It's a very specific choice That so many bits of media do I mean we just saw Cruella recently Mm. And even that movie does that exact Same fucking thing it's like you can't have it's well the perception of these writers it seems to be is that you can't have a fat character without making them also like pigging out at some point on food um and it is inherently fat phobic it's a really gross trope uh and i found that introduction frustrating because they're the only ones sitting at the dinner table sort of doing that everyone else is up and dancing doesn't even seem like everyone else has food yet like it's such a specific thing to do and then you know later on the episode we get some really nice moments with them they both end up dying very unceremonious because of course it's it's a Titanic episode, like whatever, that that doesn't bother me too much. Um, but then they get through this, like, kind of like dangerous corridor, uh, stairwell situation. And as they emerge on the other side of this, and mind you, this is after the ship has been like turned upside down, a whole bunch of people have horribly died. Like, this is a fuck situation, and it's been 10 minutes, maybe, right? Uh, they get through that corridor, and then she's immediately like, oh look, food. And then they just start eating again. And I'm like, well, what, "What? what is this?
0: I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you, but I was actually thinking about that moment specifically in relation to Cruella, because like you said, we went to see that and that has a very like uh, like obvious kind of, oh, I'm going to be eating all the time and I'm going to steal food off people's plates and shove it in my pockets kind of guy. Um, mm-hmm. With that scene in particular, I think it does the exact same thing. I do think it is doing what you're saying, but I do like how... Like, they're like, oh, Morvin, food. And then somebody's like, oh, great, somebody's happy. And then Marvin's like, don't have any then. And it's like, that reaction to it, <clears throat> the like, don't have any then, says to me that they're perfectly comfortable with who they are. And that, that isn't a bad thing. You know, is like, fat characters being comfortable with that. Um, mm. What obviously is uncomfortable is, where does that come from? And where has this characterization choice come from? And I, yeah, we don't know, obviously, but I think given Russell's history, we're going to get into it literally in the next episode. We're about to discuss (laughs) Um, it, doesn't seem like it comes from a healthy or a kind of pro place.
1: No, no. And then again, that's why I was so frustrated because, you know, right before that scene in the stairwell, when they're kind of like trying to get through all the wreckage and whatnot, the two of them have this really lovely little moment together where they're talking about how, you know, oh, don't worry, dear, we won the tickets fair and square. And she's like, well, actually, I called the line like 5,000 times. The bill that we're going to get from that is basically the cost of the tickets. And he just laughs and he's like... Well, look, we could die here anyway. I love you. Like, that doesn't matter right now. It's such a beautiful human moment.
0: You bring up an interesting point, which is the, like, they have a very nice scene. You go to really love them and appreciate them as characters, um, warts and all. And then there's this, like, scene where they come out to this, like, edge of this big shaft, basically, with, like, engines burning at the bottom, and Morven's like, well, we're not- because there's, like, a little tiny bridge that they have to cross to get over. Um, and Morvan's like, mm. we're never going to make it over that. And as he says it, like, he steps on this, like, <clears throat> part of the ledge they're on and just falls. And he's dead. And it's totally random. Totally, like, it could have it happened to anyone, but it's just, like, so unceremonious, like you say. Um, mm. And I wondered what you thought of, like... There's a lot of death in this episode, and it, it comes back to a very specific point later on in the episode where Mr. Copper makes a point about, um, you know, choosing who would live and who would die. But something about the wholesale slaughter in this episode felt out of sorts with what it should be doing as a Christmas special. I don't know if you have a particular feeling about that or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, um the this kind of subgenre of disaster film that this episode is riffing off of like Titanic. Um, uh, what is that other one called? The, the Poseidon uh, adventure is probably the Poseidon adventure. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. By the way, go watch the Poseidon adventure folks. That movie is just a treat. Anyway. Um, in those kinds of situations, I, I vibe with the idea that it's a disaster. A ship is falling apart. There will be casual death like there will be situations where it's just it's gonna happen um and i think that if the episode had leaned into that tone a little bit more um it would have felt more okay with me the way that it just kind of like kills people the way that it does Mm. um as it is now it just feels like well we need to have far less people before the finale um and while obviously the conversation he has with the old man at the end about the sort of like the unfairness of, of life and death in that sense, I think is is great and interesting. Um, but it doesn't feel particularly connected to everything else that happens,
0: if that makes sense. Um, yeah, <clears throat> it, it, it. they're kind of, I think maybe that one is that one in particular is the one that's just like stuck in my memory. as like being particularly unceremonious because like, When, like, Foon jumps off the ledge, she's, like, pulling a angel with her. When Bannacafalada dies, it's with purpose. When Astrid... Spoiler alert! When she dies, it's with purpose. It's (laughs) just that one in particular that just feels so, like, unnecessarily cruel.
1: Um... Yeah, I mean, there's also the, like, the ship attendant who opens the door and immediately gets sucked down into space. Um, oh, fuck, I forgot there about are, him. like, other... Yeah, exactly. And then, like, and that's another thing that I, I do actually really appreciate about this episode, um, is that you, know, you get that first 20 minutes or so where uh, the captain and his, like, crewmate are like, oh, there's asteroids on the way, shouldn't we do something about this? And you're like, oh, okay, but this is Doctor Who. Like, it's not going to be that bad, right? And then the asteroids hit, and it's a proper crash like it is mm. like you see like this ballroom full of people just get engulfed in flame and i was like oh fuck like it's got some teeth to it um it likes to revel in 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 the the darkness of what's going on here and i, I really appreciated that element of it um it's just you know yeah when, you, when you're dealing with named characters who you've been establishing as people um it, it gets it gets a bit more squirrely which which also brings us to the one of the surviving
0: members uh the the capitalist man <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember his name i in my head i have like rex but i don't think that's his name
1: yeah i know, it's something but the point is like he exists <laughs> to be like the shitty bad guy who uh, the doctor wouldn't save if he had a choice of who lived and died basically he's the 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 bad side of that equation um and i don't dislike that as a concept i think especially as you kick off the tenant god complex, uh, storyline. Um, but it's still just, it, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. Like the first scene, he's on a, a mobile phone and he's like, well, I don't care if it's Christmas. I've got stock to sell. I'm an asshole. And it's like, "Ugh, okay. I get it, Russell. Like, but again, writing for the back of the room. So I, I just kind of fall in the middle on a lot of these choices where I'm like, this isn't particularly well-written, but it's effective in what it's trying to do. So I just end up walking away from it being like, okay, that happened. <laughs>
0: true Uh, there isn't a a shade of grey to him he's pretty consistently just like selfish Um, you also bring up a different another point which is the characterization of the doctor in this episode Um, I think one of the things that uh, sticks in my memory from around the time of this episode was like people having a real like Christian groups having a real kind of like issue with the scene where the heavenly hosts like scoop up the doctor and like they crash through the deck of the ship. <laughs> yeah. And people being like, Oh, they're doing a Jesus thing. He's ascending to heaven. Like Jesus, which I find hilarious because it's like, have you been paying attention to this show for the last three years? It's, all about how the Doctor is Jesus. That's literally all they do. Um, the episode just prior to this one is the Doctor getting resurrected by the belief of the entirety of Earth. So, this one doesn't feel, like, mm. too bad of a characterization, but I just don't know what it adds up to. Like, it just feels like very one-note to be constantly saying, the Doctor is Jesus, the Doctor is Jesus. It just feels very... kind of, like, trite and not meaningful in the way that maybe, like, something like Gridlock... Played with belief.
1: uh Yeah, I mean, I, I think the problem is though is that we just don't see the um like the, this fruit doesn't come to bear until the that though that wilderness kind of era that I was talking about like those random tenant episodes that happened at the end of his his run. I think that what they do in series four is very necessary character building to get to that point. Mm. Um, but the season itself, uh, <laughs> the ending of season four. Does not deal with this <laughs> let's just say that oh God
0: no if anything it just like goes in the complete opposite direction um yeah yeah but we'll
1: we'll get there <laughs> we'll we'll get there
0: <laughs> we will get there and you know obviously this episode does set up something of the doctor's trajectory f- pretty much until they until the end of the tenth doctor's run, which is that scene I alluded to earlier yeah
1: uh the the ending of, of this episode, uh, is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it sneaks up on you. I think that, you know, the, obviously the Christian imagery is, is very much on the nose. Um, and, but then once you move sort of beyond that and you just reduce the doctor down to a lot of what series four, it, well, again, no, those wilderness episodes are going to end up doing is if you put the doctor and an old man together to have a conversation <laughs> about morality, you're probably going to get something pretty exciting. <laughs>
0: Um, or an old woman. Don't forget. What am I forgetting? The Waters of Mars. Oh, yeah! Can't wait to drink those Waters of Mars. No. Nope. <laughs> if you say so. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I know that you, you particularly really love that scene. Do you just want to walk us through it?
0: Yes, I do. And I love it in the kind of obviousness of it. Um, but it must be said that I do love big drama. I love high stakes kind of drama um not that this is high stakes it's just i guess more in the kind of like clear delineation of what it's saying i appreciate it because mm. um, obviously you have the the bad capitalist guy and he's like he comes up to the doctor like and i think yeah he like at the very end of the episode it's like pretty much mr copper this sweet old history guide basically who like cheated to get onto the ship and uh the capitalist guy and midshipman frame they're like the three people plus the doctor that are left alive after this huge tragedy and the capitalist guy comes up to the doctor and he's like i just wanted to say thank you you know uh because of this whole disaster my shares have tripled in value and i'm I'm, i've made me sort of rich what do you think of that and the doctor (laughs) just gives him this icy stare and you're like and then mr copper comes up to the doctor and he's like and it." I think it's, I think I just like it because of just like how blunt it is, which I find very refreshing. Yeah. Um, he just comes up to the doctor and he says, you know, of all the people you would have chosen to live, he's not the one you would have chosen. And it's like, Mm. yeah, like, of course not. But that's not how life works. That's not how reality works. And it is often that it's the bad people, quote, bad people. The people who have more than others that end up surviving or end up making out and actually making a profit on disaster. Um, But then he follows that up with saying, you know, but if you could choose that, if you could choose who lives and who dies, that would make you a monster. That's not like a particularly unusual or like um, unique thing. It's very much a staple of drama it's been sort of simmering in the background. Like you've said, it's been simmering in the background for the last three years of Russell T's like show it, it, it will have an impact on this season. It has an impact, I think on doctor who ongoing. Um, and we very much mm, will definitely. see this permeate um, Matt Smith a hundred percent right there with Peter Capaldi in a lot of ways actually gets answered in that era. I probably would say. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. So yeah, I just see the potential of what's what happens with that scene, how it unfolds, and it makes me very excited. Oh,
1: hugely, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I even if I don't particularly care about this episode all in all, um, I'm thrilled with the stuff that it sets up, uh, and the stuff that it does get right is is pretty pretty solid Doctor Who, um you know, there's just a lot of the rest.
0: (laughs) And like, you know, a lot of the rest is quite good. Like this episode looks a million bucks. It looks super expensive. Like it looks like a big budget film. The heavenly hosts look great. The ship, the CGI stuff looks great. Like it looks amazing. Um, It just, it it feels like a kind of like a Christmas trifle, like looks amazing, but makes you feel a bit ill.
1: Yeah. That is a a perfect analogy actually.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I think I probably plagiarised that from somebody, but I'm going to take it as mine. Hey, look, that,
1: that's fine. That is that is fine with me. Um, I think I'm pretty much done with things to say on this episode, unless there's anything else you want to rattle off.
0: No, I'm pretty much good. And we probably should wrap it up because we're going to also talk about partners in crime. We
1: do. We do have another one to talk about. So, uh, what are you going to give uh, Voyage of the Damned?
0: I forget. Do we do it out of 10 or do we do it A, B, C?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's how long it's been folks uh we do a, a letter
0: grading we do a letter grading it's probably like a b like maybe i'm being generous but it just would be unse- it would be um uncharacteristic for me to give a christmas special less than that so a b
1: <laughs> that's very fair um i am gonna go with a, a b minus you know i i it's, yeah, I'm just gonna go with the B minus. I'm gonna leave it at that. Um, all right, we are gonna take a quick break and then we will be back with Partners in Crime. Partners in Crime is officially episode one of series four of Doctor Who. It is another episode directed by James Strong and written by Russell T. Davies. Uh, we're going to smash out this plot description real quick and then we'll uh, we'll get to chatting about it. So Donna Noble is a girl about town investigating behind the scenes of a new pharmaceutical company, Adipose Industries, led by the formidable Miss Foster. She claims that they can deliver rapid weight loss with one little pill. Meanwhile, the doctor is also investigating adipose as both of them follow up on different leads to uncover exactly how the weight is quote unquote just walking away in the process donna witnesses a woman torn apart from the inside by small creatures made of fat and the doctor is also there donna goes back home to her nagging mother sylvia and her space obsessed granddad wilf who keen-eyed viewers will recognize from the christmas special that we just watched as the newspaper salesman while stargazing with him on the hill she expresses her desire to find the doctor the next day she and the doctor again totally oblivious to the other's presence in the in the building hide out at adipose industries the doctor in a closet and donna in a toilet while miss foster interrogates journalist penny carter who is also investigating adipose (laughs) industries the doctor and donna reunite in the now infamous window scene they try and escape by taking a window washing lift down the side of the tower block but foster severs the cables with her own sonic device. The doctor saves Donna from falling and discovers that Miss Foster is harvesting human fat on behalf of the Adipose to breed a new race of their children. Now with the doctor on the scene she moves she moves to do a mass conversion which will kill every adipose customer. The doctor uses Donna's spare gift pendant that she stole earlier in the episode to stop Miss Foster's converter from working, but not before she can convert 10,000 adipose. The adult adipose arrive for their offspring and Miss Foster, but at the last minute they drop her from the levitating beam killing her on the pavement below. Donna unpacks her mom's car ready to finally take her trip in the TARDIS but the doctor is unsure, having ruined one companion's life already. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Donna assures him that they are strictly platonic before dropping her mum's keys in a street bin, telling a nearby woman to let Sylvia know where they are. But who is this woman? Why, it's none other than Rose Tyler. The doctor and Donna take off, but not before paying Wolf for a flying visit. He dances on the hill as Donna zooms into space for the beginning
0: of her season. Callum. Ugh. I love that ending what scene. You... It's so. It's much so good.
1: The last 5 minutes of Partners in Crime is some of the best Doctor Who.
0: I think yes. This episode also surprised me with how much I disliked parts of it, but fuck. It, <laughs> can we just like can we just say up front if nothing else Donna Noble is queen.
1: She, she truly is. Donna Noble. Like, okay. There's a reason why season four is the highest rating on IMDb for all of new who like people really connect with, um, what tenant and, um, Catherine Tate do mm. with their dynamic this season. Um, Donna is such a phenomenal companion. Uh, we have been so excited to talk about the season for so long now. Um, and now that we're here, her first, int- like, well, okay, her second episode, technically, because she was obviously in The Runaway Bride. Um, as a companion introduction story, this does such a good job of grounding her and helping us understand her interiority in a way that, um, un- unfortunately, Martha just wasn't given.
0: Um, no, she wasn't. It's, it It's is quite frustrating to witness that. Uh, as an adult, and to realize just how hard done she was by when you see Rose and Donna on either side of her. Um, but let's not get bogged down in the marthiness of it all. She's coming back anyway. Um, Donna. Oh, yeah. Donna, it's so validating to me to think that, like, especially. Okay, so, like, for context, like, Catherine Tate's turn as Donna Noble in The Runaway Bride wasn't particularly well received by fans. Um, and so the news that she would be returning as a full-time companion, like, it wasn't met with, like, glee, shall we say. And the 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 fan base was pretty well divided leading up to season four about whether this was going to be a good thing or if it was going to be, like, the sign of the end times, basically, that she was becoming a companion. Um, so it's, like, so mm. enriching and validating that, like, that was proved wrong that people really did like her and people really did connect with her and people really did see just how phenomenal an actress she is on so many different levels. Um, but then also to sort of become just as popular as Rose and keep recurring to this day as like a popular, if not the most popular companion, like I, that might be a bit of a tall order, but still like quite popular. Um, mm. it's just like, it's so nice. And, I'm just going to say, like, at the top of this episode and up front, it's so nice that that happened to a companion who isn't a young thing, who is an older woman. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, this show doesn't have the best, like, track record when it comes to um appreciating women of a certain age. And I think you only have to look back at Russell T. Davies' like, history of writing mums to sort of see that. Um <laughs> Donna escapes that, obviously, by not being a mum, but and she has a mum who has her own Russell issues. Um, but it, it's she's still an older woman, and I don't want to discredit that, or discount that. That's great to see. I love
1: it. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I think Donna is is probably the the best thing to talk about with this episode. So we, so we'll definitely start with her. Um, the The concept that they introduce in this, uh, story, I, I really fuck with because when we see Donna at the end of The Runaway Bride, um, she is very much like quote unquote normie, right? Like she's, (laughs) she's always talking about like reality TV and she's a very like earth based living experience. Right. Um, and then her time with the doctor during that episode changes her. And I think at the very end, you know, he tells her just like, just go and be brilliant go and do something. Right. Um, And so, when we catch up with Donna here, you know, we see her on her own instigating this investigation. Um, She's all, like, dressed up in her business smarts and whatnot. And so, we already get the impression that, like, oh, okay, like, this is a changed woman. She is now actively pursuing interesting things in her life. She's investigating mysterious stuff. Um that's all really good and that on its own I I would be happy with right but then they make her even more interesting by um, you know she doesn't meet up with the doctor for until a couple of days into this investigation and so after the first day when she doesn't I mean she she finds some leads whatever things happen. Um she goes home afterwards and she goes back to her parents' flat. Uh she's like you said like she's an older woman as well and then she just sits at the the kitchen table having a cup of tea just getting chastised by her mum for being like what are you doing with your life? Like what like what happened to you? Like what what is what's Donna even all about at this point? Um and it's such a complicated and layered character uh to have her and she confirms this later in the episode where she explicitly says to the doctor yeah like you came into my life and you showed me that like there could be amazing things and I could do amazing things she's like and then I went out and and I did it I went to Egypt you know but then suddenly it's just two weeks of bottled water and bus trips and then you're back home again and this idea that she's not a stagnant character that she sort of exists in a very human way in that your life isn't just changed in one instant. You're not a completely different person the next day. You continue to be, you have the momentum of your choices and and sort of the person that you were. And so to have Donna very, you know, outwardly be like, Hey,
0: I tried and and my life still kind of sucks is so good. <laughs> it's really refreshing, isn't it? And I think that the best thing about Donna's character over this whole season is that like, <clears throat> She isn't like Rose who, like, for lack of a better word, like, she <laughs> knows her worth. And I say that, I, I yeah. say that and I'm like, oh, that sounds, like, really shitty for me to say. Because, like, it's amazing that there is a young companion who knows their worth and, like, and who fights for their little corner. Um, Obviously, that's one of the reasons we don't like Martha. But that, that sorry, not don't like Martha, but um, <laughs> 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 criticize uh, the characterization. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> of Martha, um, but definitely with Rose, that kind of spoilt slightly and became this more sort of um, selfish kind of character that lost the humanity. Donna knows her worth, but she's like you say human, and she's plagued with doubt at the same time. She yeah. like is like curious and keen, but also like cares about the little things she. It's also, like... Sorry, I'm just, like, thinking now. It's very, very telling, I think, just how refreshing she is in that she has, like, a positive relationship with a parent figure um, and not yeah. a kind of, like, dismissive, oh, oh I just want to leave and get out and you're all stupid. And... and
1: a father figure at that as well.
0: Yeah. And I use the term parent figure very loosely, obviously, because, like, Wilf is written as her granddad. The actor who played her father um, in The Runaway Bride passed away. Um, before recording for the full season could take place. I think he recorded the scenes in this episode, but obviously they had to cut them and then recast the character as Wilf. Um, so, but he still very much fits that like father figure role, I think. Um, it's really, yeah, it's like, it's really good to see a companion who has that in their life. I think the comparison you made
1: with uh, Rose and and Martha, by extension, is also interesting because, you know, with Rose, her confidence and sense of worth came from her youth, right? You know, she's... What, what was she, like, 20? She was 19 when mm-hmm. they started that. Yeah, exactly. Like, Rose, Rose is young, right? Like, Rose has her entire life ahead of her. And then we jump ahead to Martha, and Martha is young and successful. Like, she is, she knows exactly what she's doing in her life, she loves her work, and she's clearly good at it, right? Right. Donna is a wholly unique breed of character in this sense because she is a woman in her like late thirties, mm. early forties, possibly. Mm. Like given the age that Catherine Tate was when they filmed this, and the way that the character is written, and she isn't a very explicit failure to launch uh, kind of character, which we don't see a lot of with women in stories. We see a lot of that with dudes because it's often played as like, oh, he's just you know he's fucking he's, a, he's one of the lads. He's just trying to get it together. But women are rarely afforded this opportunity to be. Not a fuck up, but just a victim of of a, a world that doesn't care if you get left behind kind of feeling. Um, and so that contrast that she has to Rose and Martha, not having that sense of direction uh, and not having that like very defined sense of self yet is really just such a great jumping off point for her character. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you consider that they pair it with an, an explicit refusal of no, 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 this won't be a, she finds her worth by falling in love with him story. Um, the, the end of this episode has them have an, an outright conversation where he's like, I can't do a romantic thing. And she's like, I don't fucking want that from you anyway. What are you (laughs) talking about? And that, is also really refreshing because it establishes the stakes of the story. It's not going to be that she needs him for her worth. Uh, It's just going to be that he is an opportunity for her to discover herself, basically.
0: Totally. And she, um, I think to go back to what you were saying earlier, like it is so refreshing that you have a companion who, um, I think like more than Rose and Martha, definitely more than Amy, like not that we should be thinking ahead, but anyway, I'm going there um, (laughs) Who probably is the most real quote-unquote um companion on the show in the sense that like it's it's hard you know life is fucking hard and (laughs) you know she's a middle-aged woman living with her parents but i like that it's never taken as like you should pity me kind of thing it's Mm. not a look at this poor woman she can't get her life together it's like it's like but look at this poor woman like her life kind of sucks but she's making a real go of it nonetheless I I'm not saying this in like in the yeah you, you know what I mean like she I just I do. there's just yeah. so much they, it, she's not
1: of, framed as someone to sympath- to to pity it's no. just sympathy which is a different thing but
0: she's sh- also shaded in like such terms of joy as well like, it it's just all there basically is what i'm saying cuz like yeah um it is slightly frustrating that I think, and this is going to come in more as the season goes on, that Donna in some ways falls into the same role of Rose in the like, I couldn't, I can't uh, sort of have a fulfilling life unless I'm with you in the TARDIS kind of thing. It's separate from the romantic side, sure, but it's still very much tied to the TARDIS and the TARDIS as a symbol of freedom and of Earth being a kind of restricting- who in their right mind would want to live there kind of place. And I do have my problems with that concept in general, but it's not as bad as it was during the Rose years, let's say, but it's there. It's a tiny little um, frustration that's still there, but, um, it doesn't, it doesn't spoil my enjoyment of Donna as a character. Shall we say?
1: No. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, like, um, Sylvia even is, is her name Sylvia? Mm hmm. Yeah, she even has that line to Donna when, like, she's chastising her about, like, what's gone wrong with Donna's life. And, like, I think she says, like, no one's going to come along with a magic wand and make your life all better. And that is an interesting thing to say to a character in a story where you're about to have someone come along with a magic (laughs) wand and make their life all better. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know that Russell grapples with that, um contrast or that disparity no i i think that he does often unintentionally establish earth as a very undesirable outcome for people um absolutely which i mean I think Moffat does a much more interesting job of because, you know, Amy's in a situation where she wants to choose that life for herself. Yes. Uh, Clara is in a situation where she is very explicitly rejecting that life because of a combination of trauma and who she is as a a person. Uh, And then you get Bill, who gets unfortunately trapped out of that life.
0: But not before, just with Clara. I think... I think... God, I don't want to go down this road of talking about Clara. But... (laughs) But, like... I think actually with Clara, like it's probably the best example of it because like Clara chooses to have both lives for a very long time. And she's like, I'm not prepared to give up either thing and you're going to have to make that work for me. And that's great. And I think that that could have been something of that here, especially because Donna isn't somebody who's just going to throw her grandfather away or even her mum away. Like she loves her family dearly and like would stay if she could stay kind of thing. Um, and I think that's the other thing as well that is quite refreshing about this characterization in this episode in particular, is it's not an opportunity that just lands in Donna's lap in this episode particular. We open this episode and she's trying mm. to find him. She is going out there pursuing this life, and like to the point where she's prepared. and She's packed bags and she's got a hat box, and you know it, it, she's investigating and doing those things. Like she's not a passive. All oh, my life sucked until I met you, and now it's great she's like actively like I want to make my life better and this is how I know how to do that yes so that's good very much agreed
1: it reminds me of um this is my last point on Clara for today uh, <laughs> it, it reminds me of that scene where um she says to the doctor like Matt Smith's doctor like no like come back and ask me tomorrow like that like that whole establishing that these people exist outside of their desire to just get in a box with him um it's yeah, something something I I really really fuck with. Um outside of Donna. And it's weird because I was just sitting here thinking about the rest of the episode that isn't Donna related and I'm like, yeah, the rest of it just doesn't really fucking matter. Like Donna is <laughs> is such a a wonderful crucial bit of storytelling here that they get so right. Um but there is there is technically a plot.
0: Um
1: what do you think of the plot?
0: I as I said before, this period is very much the zenith of my, like, Who obsession. So it should be noted when this episode went out, like, th- it was- I hated this, but, like, before it became really, really popular, Doctor Who would go out, like, months after it had finished airing in the UK. So it was, like, June when this episode had been out for, like, mm. months at this point. Um, so I-, I knew about it, but I hadn't seen it until, like, June or July, maybe. Um, but I remember taping it on a VHS and <laughs> watching it, like, I think- at least once a day until the next week when Fires of Pompeii aired. And so Mm. I I remember loving it. I remember just eating it up. I was obsessed um, with this episode in particular. Um, Now, when I reflect on that, it was probably because I just loved David Tennant because, you know, little gay boy am I. Um, And I loved (laughs) Donna and... Like cute little alien creatures, and the fact Doctor Who was back, basically. Yeah. If I look at this plot now, I'm like, what? <laughs> what the fuck am I actually watching here? Because it is just it is absurd, and it is it's absurd just how little relevance the two halves of this episode have to one another. Um, because you have on one hand you've got Donna and the Doctor and the trying to find each other and the great scruple kind of comediness that they do with those two characters. Uh, And obviously you've got Donna Mm -hmm. and her family and just basically everything to do with Donna. And then on the other side, you have this weird little plot where like a woman from outer space is harvesting humans for their fat and. Yeah. I I I can't even (laughs) follow that up with anything to say like
1: well no that's it because it's like that's the beginning and ending of of that plot there's um oh okay admittedly there is a a good bit of world building established uh there's a throwaway line of dialogue where the doctor asks uh foster like why are you doing this and she's like well because their planet is gone and he's like what the fuck do you mean their planet is gone a great little hint at what's to come right um i i did appreciate that element Mm. of it uh but everything else about foster and the adipose stuff just feels very odd and you noted this to me and i couldn't get it out of my head when i was re-watching it but like her plan was harmless until he interfered like she was providing a service that worked while also supporting an up-and-coming race that had just essentially been genocided like it was Mm. all working and then he's just like oh hello i'm the doctor and then it gets
0: it gets fucked up well exactly and i think that this episode like tries so hard to make it seem like she's a villain Um, just in the general demeanor, specifically in the fact that she would like harvest whole humans to make adipose. I think, you know, that's definitely the kind of the crux around like the doctor's morality issue with her plot. Um, Mm. but you know, she never would have had to do that with Stacy in in the, so for context, this episode opens and Donna's investigating and she goes to the house of a customer, uh, an adipose customer called Stacy to sort of find out how the pills are working for her. Um, and in the course of that, like she's, Donna's fiddling with this little gold pendant and she basically activates Stacy, for lack of a better word. Um, and so <laughs> Foster's like, oh no, it's too early. And she's seen where the adipose, cause an adipose like parthenogenesis out of her stomach. And so Stacy sees it. So she's like, I'm going to do a full conversion. And like, it's harrowing. Like they, Stacy just gets pulled apart and turned into the tiny little fat creatures. Um... And if that had never happened, if Donna, I guess in that instance, hadn't interfered um, and that had never happened, then there would be no issue. And they would have just kept harvesting their little fat creatures at night. Once a million had happened, they would have gone, collected them, gone away and left some people very happy. But, yeah, you know, fat people trying to get thin? Oh, No.
1: Can't, can't, can't have that. Um Yeah, the yeah, like the, the, the fat phobic stuff is is definitely here again. Um it's just
0: It's not as fat phobic in a way, I don't think in the sense that like Stacy is not a No
1: yeah, not in an explicit way. I think the problem with the way that um, Partners in Crime uh, deploys its fat people is that instead of being caricatures who also get some human moments, they are just plot devices to Davies' writing here. Hmm. Um, there's no sort of, like, consideration for the humanity of, of, of these people. No.
0: Um, I mean, it might be more of a consideration and... if Donna herself had been a fat person and was part of the plot, and then, like, but there isn't any kind of, like, like you say, there isn't any consideration given to them as human beings. They're just harvested, basically.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm just exceptionally tired of of this era of the show using fat people as either a, a joke or a plot device, um, because that is the only relationship that it has with them. Um, and I, I understand that it's, it's quote unquote, a product of its time. But Mm. it's just like we said before with like, it's still happening in major Disney films now. Um, It's just, this is another piece of that. This incredibly gross, like kind of like cultural structure that we have around the way we depict fat people in mainstream media. And it sucks. It just, it sucks. I don't like seeing it. uh, And it makes me sad that a, a show that was such a cornerstone of my childhood
0: has this so deeply embedded in its first four seasons. It's really bad, isn't it? And in this episode in particular, it's kind of like horrific just because it's such a tonal mismatch. Like that scene I highlighted at the top of the episode with Stacey is just, it's weird to watch where, like I said, like I'm not even kidding. She is pulled apart and turned into these little creatures, but it's because they're cute. It's kind of like written as like a funny little scene where like. One of them like waves at Donna as she, as it jumps out the window. Yeah. It's like, consider the reality. And I think it a, at one point it does when Donna's like, what about poor Stacy? And like, she doesn't forget that that happened necessarily, but that hmm. it, it's still like, Ooh, they're so cute and weird. And, but that it's quite horrific the way they've manifested. And uh, that could be interesting yeah, in I a mean- more considered episode.
1: Exactly. In, in a more considered episode, a lot of this would be a lot better, I think. Mm. Uh, and I mean, you still can't get away from the fact that, like, that scene specifically films a fat person being horrifically killed by their own
0: fat. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: That's that's a lot to unpack, Russell. That's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, look, I I don't know. It's just, I, I had to bring it up here, especially as it comes on the tail of uh, Voyage of the Damned. It was just, watching these two back-to-back, I was like, huh, yep, no, he really does have a problem with this. Um, but, but, look, can, is what it is. Uh, we, we've, we've talked about it now, so...
0: Can you think of an example post this episode?
1: Well, that's what I was just trying to consider, like, where we're headed in this season, and I can't remember any off the top of my head. Um... So
0: I guess we'll we'll see how we go with season four. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this is the last time we do have to talk about it. Um, cause it is not Hopefully, a yeah. happy conversation to have. Um,
1: no, the adipose no,
0: themselves, not. I think are, like, they're obviously just like a little marketing tool, but I kind of find them cute in their conception. These are like gray blobs with hands and feet and this little tiny little fang. Um, I do definitely love the design and look of them. And the little like, wow. <laughs> Kind of R2-T2 noises they make. Um, yeah. And especially... So, there's, like, a scene of mass conversion where, like, she activates this transducer. Miss Foster, I mean. Activates this transducer. Ju- ju- and, like, all of these adipose manifests and start wobbling down the street. And something about that image just makes me so weirdly sad. Uh, like, they're just so tiny and defenseless. And, like, one of them gets... Like, a few of them get run over by a taxi, which is quite horrific.
1: Um, yeah, that is awesome. Because it
0: has this, like, squelch sound that accompanies it. It's like... And it's like, oh, what am I watching right now? Especially because the Doctor yeah. humanizes them and he says, you know, they're just children and they can't help what they've come from. And it's like... The death in this episode just feels so incidental and not considered. And a part of this tonal kind of yeah. mismatch whiplash reaction I'm having to this part of this episode. But it is good that I can... I think you as well can like fully compartmentalize the Adipose stuff and the Donna stuff as quite separate.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. They are, they're parallel stories. They're not interconnected. Um, There's stuff that they could have done to, to make them that way, but they, they didn't. And again, it's because like I look at partners in crime and I'm like, okay, you, you wanted to do a character study for Donna. That's great. That should have been your A plot and the Adipose should have been your B plot. It should have just been flipped, basically. Mm. Um, and that would especially also support the idea that, like, the Doctor and Donna do all this research together in the background of the story and then ultimately discover, like, you know what, this is actually a pretty fucking harmless alien story for once. Like, that would have been refreshing, you know, as opposed to, like, oh, suddenly all of London could die again. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah.
0: It's, it's, it's like a one-trick pony with Russell, is it? This episode and the yeah. finale will not yeah they're not they're not Mm. new or original it's just same old same old bleepity bloop yeah
1: man speaking of that
0: finale i i I do want to warn
1: you folks pretty early on in this uh series run um the places that this story goes with donna they're gonna get we're gonna work yeah no no i no no not about the story itself but like i'm just saying like i i know i personally am gonna have some some reactions to this. Um, I, we've been, we've been kind of like talking on and off and teasing how we were going to talk about Donna's ending across our past three seasons of our show. And so, yeah, I'm, it's just going to be a
0: ride folks. (laughs) It's going to be a ride. (laughs) But thankfully we're not there yet with Donna and we still have. Thankfully we have got such a fun season before that happens. So truly. And you know, Donna, Donna, Donna is, is, part of the you're right like she is one of the reasons why this season is so good even if i don't particularly remember a lot of the stories in this season she remains like a shining beacon throughout um it's probably like worth us talking about like probably the best scene in this whole episode which is the scene on the hill
1: <laughs> oh i was thinking about the window scene um but oh. yes no both are contenders
0: <laughs> well and maybe and, like we could probably finish with the window scene actually because we haven't talked about David Tennant much that's
1: true we really haven't this yeah okay yeah, yeah okay cool the the hill scene
0: it's so good and for the reasons we have yeah. mentioned before because Donna and Wolf have a genuinely loving and beautiful connection with each other um I think it's just generally quite nice that you have a character who like is interested in alien stuff it feels like Russell writes a lot of his, <laughs> like, human characters as, like, quite normal and like, ooh, we just do stuff on Earth. Or if they, like, they're into aliens, they're like Clive from episode one, who are just fully obsessed and weird and have yeah. sheds full of crap. Wilf's just like, I love space, I love it so much, and I just want to <laughs> go out there. And I want that for you too, Donna. Um mm. And it's so nice. The, the bit that really, that I well up when i think about is the scene where he the bit where he's like um i remember when you were a kid and you got on a bus all, all on your own you said we said no holiday this year so you got on a bus on your own and you went all the way to strathclyde and we had the police out looking for you and they're laughing and then he's like you know and we were like where's she gone you know where's that girl gone hey the subtext mm. <laughs> It's... it's
1: so good the way it like links up perfectly with that whole failure to launch the way Donna is already feeling about her state in life at the moment. And then to have someone who like loves you and sees you for who you are, you know, have that conversation with you and be like, Hey, like what, like, where are you? Like, it's, it's the most I've ever feel like a character or like a companion has been like seen by someone in this show so far. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it, it establishes Wilfred perfectly for where they take his character at the end of everything. It also does the same with, you know what? No, I can't get into it yet. I, I said we wouldn't, so I'll leave that alone for now. Um, but yeah, Wilfred is fantastic. Donna is fantastic. I even really like Sylvia. Honestly, I think the entire Noble family is a a really good collection of well thought out characters.
0: Yeah. I guess even with Sylvia, it's like, she's, she's selfish, but she's not selfish in a I was about to say, she's not selfish in a harmful way. And I don't even know if that's true. Um, She's just... I, she's probably more akin to, like, the Jackie Tyler than the Mar- the Martha's mum, whose name I can't even yeah, remember. Yeah,
1: like, like a middle-class Jackie as opposed to a, a lower-middle-class Jackie.
0: <laughs> exactly. And we love Jackie.
1: Oh, yeah. Jackie's great. Oh, Jackie's
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I do... And Sylvia probably gets one of the better moments in this episode where she's on the phone with Donna and she's like, I need the car! And, and Donna's like, I can't. I mean, I'm... I'm <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm off. And she's like, why are you whispering? And Donna's like, I'm in church. What are you in church for? I'm <laughs> praying. <laughs> it's like so yeah, It's a very funny, funny episode. It, it really is. It really is. And it leads, and that leads to, I think, probably the funniest part of this whole episode, which is... Oh. <laughs> Do you want to take this I one? will
1: put a link to this in the... Yeah, I, I'll
0: put a link to this in the show
1: description. Look, it would be odd if you're listening to this and you don't know exactly what we're talking about. But the moment that Doctor and the, the doctor and Donna realise that each other are both in the Adipose building, she is spying mm-hmm. on this meeting through this little, like, porthole window in a door. And he is outside of the building, sitting on that, like, window cleaning device. And they both look at each other through these two panes of glass so they can't even talk. And they just mime <laughs> out an entire higher interaction and it's the funniest shit and then it gets elevated again because suddenly donna freezes in the middle of making this dumb face and she looks over and all the bad guys are just watching them interact silently and it's <laughs> uh it is the funniest doctor who has ever been or will ever be
0: <laughs> that is a tall order wow
1: but you know i'm right
0: <laughs> i i can't think of an, a funnier moment you're right because doctor who doesn't do comedy all that well it has to be said but yeah this no. is definitely like the funniest i, I laughed genuinely rewatching it yeah, again like a
1: proper laugh
0: <laughs> proper laugh um and also just like it's directed very well like we should talk about like just james strong's like not remarkable let's say direction but just like he gets those moments pretty well bang on uh- Um, He does.
1: I don't know what happened between Voyage of the Damned and this, because, like, we didn't talk about this, but Voyage of the Damned is, like, it's an expensive-looking episode, but I don't think it's shot particularly well. Um, No. And then, in this episode, he gets some banger moments. There's this really great scene where, um, at the end of the first day of them both investigating, they're both chasing something through the street, and they end up on, like, essentially opposite sides of this tiny- like a corner block and it just pans and you can see them both from like a, a, like a bird's eye view. And it's just such, it's so well shot. All the stuff on the hill with Wilfred mm. is beautiful. Um, yeah, it's,
0: it's, it's good. It's solid. It is really good. And he makes, I think the, a great choice with Murray Gold's score as well with the, like where they see each other and it like is building up with this crescendo moment at, which it starts mm. with, you know, miss foster explaining the adipose and she pulls the adipose out of her desk and you're like oh it's just about it's just about the revelation of this plot and then doctor's there and then the that's I was gonna say and then the donna and then donna's there and and it's the music's building to that crescendo and then it manifests with them seeing each other for the first time and there's like the silence and then the way the camera like goes from the doctor yeah. to like to donna and then does that like loud like trumpety honk <laughs> It's the only way I can describe it when it goes to Donna and she's just like got this huge grin on her face, like, like it feels like how we experience Doctor Who. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I do. I, I do know just what you
1: mean. I, it, it's like with Voyage of the Damned. Uh, it's the same way I feel about Murray Gold's score in this episode. I don't particularly like it, but I respect it for what it is. Uh, I understand that it's not for me, um, mm. and that and that's okay. Yeah, like I think it's good at what it's trying to do. So totally. The the other uh, sort of thing that I, I think we need to talk about is that um, you know. Uh, there is technically the shadow of martha over this episode um it doesn't come up a lot um i, I think the, the a couple of times that it is touched on are uh, like they're, they're fine um it's unfortunately it's just kind of a byproduct of exactly how martha was treated by the show uh i, I think she remains the afterthought companion unfortunately uh because uh partners in crime it, it just doesn't it just doesn't concern itself very much with her how do you feel about that
0: it's not definitely not to the extent that season three as a whole considered Rose. Um, I think there's obviously a lingering ghost of Martha. I think the worst bit is where the doctor's like, they're standing on the rooftop and, you know, the doctor's talking about Donna. Uh, sorry, the doctor's talking about Martha. And he kind of like sniffs and looks away and says, she fancied me. And it's like, ah, oh, you're so gross. Like, you know that you fucked up her life. You have you can't admit it, but you know it. Like, don't don't have this little moment. And I quite like that Donna, like, follows it up by saying, like, I feel like she's quite sarcastic in the way that she says, like, you know, charity Martha. Like, she knows that he's bullshitting and she knows that Martha yeah. was doing him a favour by hanging around for that long. Like, charity Martha. Uh, it, uh, that's how I'm choosing to take it. Because obviously you could yeah. interpret it in a different way and be like, oh, poor Martha, pity Martha, gosh what an idiot she is. um, But I don't want that to be true. Um... The other, like, yeah. sort of better moment is, you know, the Doctor's, like, mid trying to... Tinkering with the machine that's converting all the people into Adipose. And um, he's talking about what he's done since he left Martha Donna, and she's, like... She asks him if he's been with anyone, and she... He says, yes, you know, uh, I met this person, Martha, and I destroyed half her life, is what he says. Um, yeah. It's frustrating that, again, it's, like kind of offhand and he's, you know, flippantly mentioning it and it's I think supposed to be written, it's written in a way that's like you're supposed to be like, oh, how sad. Like he feels so bad about what he did. It's like what no. He he did a he was really shitty to her. Like, I don't pity him at all. I pity I feel bad for Martha for having to put up with that. Um (laughs) but it has to be said that like on the whole David Prenn David Tennant is like pretty likable in this episode, pretty lovable indeed. Um, he's back to his like jovial kind of like season two version of himself. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'd agree with that. you know he's still a joy to watch, even if like I don't think much of the way that <laughs> yeah. Russell T writes the Doctor in this era. Um, and you know I think definitely his relationship with Donna is his best, and makes this his probably his best season.
1: Uh, yeah, and it's it's for, for all the reasons that we've mentioned. Donna is specifically a character that is um, finally able to equalize the power dynamic that he imposed on the other two women. Totally. Um, and on top of that, as well, you do have the fact that Catherine Tate is a powerhouse of an actress. Mm. Um, She's not playing second so field to not anyone. Only Exactly. Not only textually do we have a woman who is standing shoulder to shoulder with the doctor, but met it like outside of the sh- like outside of the text itself. Um, we finally have an actress who matches Tennant's natural charisma and screen presence. Um, oh, and that's not to say anything bad about the the work that um, uh, the work that Billy Piper and Freema Ajenew did. You guys know that we absolutely adore those two women in those roles, um, but. Yeah, that, but Tate just... Uh, Tate brings something very unique
0: to it. She does. And it it, it, it should be noted that, you know, Billy Piper was pretty untri- untried as an actor when she started. Frame Adjaman was pretty much an unknown. But Catherine Tate has had a whole, like, pretty a phenomenal comedy career. At that point, bigger than David Tennant's, you know, at yeah. that point. So, like, she isn't just some beer player. She's a successful actor. Dumbing it down in a lot mm. of ways to be in this show. Um I, know I literally just, like, moments ago was, like, Kylie was, like, would be so lucky to be in Doctor <laughs> Who. And that's fucking Kylie Minogue, but, you know, whatever. Um, it, yeah, in a lot of ways, like, yeah, Catherine Tate is, like, was more experienced than David Tennant at this point. Um, mm. So, it go- stands to reason that they would be equals More than anything else. Um, And obviously then that manifests in the pretty alright scene where he's like, you know, oh, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to bring anyone on board who's going to, like, fall in love with me again. And she's like, oh, that's not going to happen to me because, oh, I fucking hate you and blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I like the scene on Um, the hill, but I don't, (laughs) I don't really like the way that they play that, like. You want a mate? Oh, you just want a mate for oh, scene.
1: Oh yeah, that that line in particular is is, is a bit too slapstick for the moment. Um, I, I think that having them explicitly state this won't be a romantic season is probably for the audience's benefit. Um, mm. uh, I I don't mind it as a character moment for Donna, especially because Donna does in that moment get to be like. I- come on man like i didn't even mention that yeah i I think there is a a degree of maturity to their dynamic introduced in that moment and it does make him in the same way that that scene with like um oh she fancied me like it makes him look like a boy um Hmm. and she is a woman um Hmm. and so i i do like that dynamic it's just it's it's, it's, that's very subtexty um i do the i feel like
0: oh sorry i do yeah you're absolutely right um I do like, though, just before that exchange, though, there's a really good moment where um, Donna's packed her bags and she's standing in the door of the TARDIS and the doctor's, like, holding all of her bags. Like, it's just kind of, like, blank stare. <laughs> he's, like, thinking. Um, and Donna's just like, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, my friend said I have to get shots if I travel overseas. And-, and then she goes, like, she's like, you're not saying much. And he's like, yeah, it's a funny old life. And then she's like, you don't want, you don't want me. And he's like, I'm not saying that. She's like but you asked me like ah oh, it breaks my heart when she thinks that she's not actually going to get this opportunity um it breaks my heart because like she deserves it she has earned it um at that yeah. point um more than any other companion i think um mm-hmm. it's just it, that is a good scene but then yeah i <laughs> don't think it much is, of what follows it is.
1: Speaking of companions,
0: um, we
1: should wrap this up with uh, a scene that if you were to just listen to my thoughts over the past um, you know, year of us recording this show, you might be like, but James, why, why are you excited by this? But I can't deny that episode one of series four ending with a teaser that Rose is somehow back got me... Fucking hyped uh, it is a brilliant moment of television
0: <laughs> it's very um it's very fast and the furious when uh Letty comes back isn't it
1: do you believe in ghosts
0: <laughs> no but it is like fully fanservice-y that they would bring Rose back at this point there is actually zero reason that she would pee there um but in the same way like the Kylie stuff like oh it was big. This scene, that moment, was f- huge uh, when it went out, like, Rose being back. Yeah. Um, And it, it it holds up now, even now. Like, you know it's her, but when she turns around and, and you can- and Plippi Piper's face takes up like, the whole frame, it feels like, of the screen- Oh, you're just like... Oh, it's,
1: it's, it's a moment. It's a moment. And it's weird, because like you say, like, you know, even though you know who it is, I remember when I 1st rewatched this, I forgot that she shows up at the end. And so when Donna hands, like, says to that woman who's off screen, oh, can you just tell Sylvia the keys are in that bin? And it pans over and she turns around and like you said, her whole face is there. I was like, oh! Mm. Like, it was such a, a and, big moment for me. Um, and it's a specifically yeah.
0: big Doctor Who moment. Like, it's not Kylie being there. It's not Catherine Tate. It's like, this is big because you're invested in this show. Exactly.
1: It's gone on for long enough that it now has its own law to reference for these kind of moments, mm. um, which is, is really impressive and successful. Uh, I I also think that even though it is only a few seconds of screen time, you very much get the impression that this is a different Rose and it's a different Billy mm. Piper playing her. She's, she's grown. She's more mature. She's got a darker edge to her face. It's just, it's so exciting. Um, and most importantly, it's done in such a way that doesn't at all detract from every everything we just experienced with Donna. They go hand in hand. Um, and I, I do think it's funny that in a story that sees Rose actively return, the companion of the time is treated better than a story where Rose is not at all present and Martha is just still overshadowed (laughs) by
0: her. Yeah. It has to be said that like Rose has just as big a presence in the two seasons she's not a part of as the ones that she is. Um, yeah. That was a problem last season. Will become a problem, I think, in this season. But for now, it's pretty good.
1: Um, Yeah, well, that's it. Well, so many of the problems of season four don't happen until the finale. Truly. Um, that, that that finale is is very uniquely, like, a bomb getting dropped on the writing of this series. Um, but we will get there in due course. Is there anything else you want to talk about with Partners in Crime?
0: Look, not particularly. And actually, just looking at the time, this is probably going to average out to be our longest running episode welcome back (laughs) so we should probably wrap things up for the poor listeners at home i'm giving this a b plus i think um because it's definitely not a good episode but like it's got a lot of like i'm probably more convinced of its better of its goodness just by having this conversation
1: Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I'll land on a B plus as well. I I think that just strictly speaking as a, as a a piece of Doctor Who plot writing, it's, you know, a C minus, but the, the Donna stuff is so good that it elevates
0: the entire thing. Um, and we're going to get to some good Doctor Who next week, obviously.
1: My god, Fires of Pompeii is I didn't realize how hard I was going to ride for it until I rewatched it and I am so excited to get into it. Callum, I don't think has rewatched it yet. Not and yet. when I did mention to him how excited I was, he was like, "Oh, that one?"
0: Well, because this is like my kid brain uh firmly attached. It's <laughs> a historical episode and, you know, they're never the ones that you remember as a kid. They're never the like ooh, that's cool, kind of ones. But, like, I do think that adult me will appreciate it much differently. But I haven't watched it. That has to be said.
1: That's it. Now, Fires of Pompeii is just a a beast of an episode. There is so much going on in that runtime. Um, And then after that, we've also got uh, Planet of the Ood coming up. um, Some other stuff as well. Look... Series four is going to be a a really fun ride. Even the ones we don't like, we're going to have a good time talking about. So um, I, for one, am am
0: thrilled to be back. And I hope that you are too, dear listener. I hope that you're thrilled and can't wait to follow us on this journey as we approach the end of the Russell T era.
1: Yeah. Look at us. Look at us go. You know what that means, folks? We are getting ever closer to Clara. As always, thank you so much for joining us here. If, remember, if you do want to have your thoughts and feelings read on the show, you can email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's to the word two. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at twoheartspod. That's to the number two. My personal account is at omgmorejames if you want to follow me for... You know, it used to be Star Wars Hot Takes, but increasingly it's just getting back to some video game stuff. I post my writing on there as well. Um, so yeah, check that out if you want.
0: You've been talking about Cruella and Fast and the Furious a little bit as well.
1: Oh my God. Fast? You know what? We'll, we'll get to that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't post nearly as much as James does, but you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricalum. Um, what, you can see my life unfold, I guess. I'm very personal and upfront on that account. But this has been a treat. I'm so glad we're back.
1: Yeah, me me too. This has been an absolute joy. Uh, listeners, we hope that you have been well and, and safe and happy in the interim. Um, until next time, uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time for Pfizer Pompeii. Be kind to each other, stay safe, and we'll see you then.
0: Oh boy. Bye.